Okay, if you were to peruse uh, the contents page of any good, solid, modern Christian hymnal, uh, one theme that might jump out at you would be the theme of conflict or warfare. Is that not the case? Let's think about that. Onward Christian soldiers, for instance, or behold the Christian warrior stand, or maybe even the army of the Lord. Military language has always adorned much of Christian praise. And I suppose the the reason for that is rather obvious, isn't it? The Christian life is one of conflict, isn't it? We are told to wage war on the sinful flesh. We are to fight the spiritual war against Satan, aren't we? We are supposed to wrestle for truth in the life of God's church. The Christian life is one of conflict. Well, this evening, in this portion of Scripture that we're going to look at just now, like any uh, good Christian hymnal, uh, the Apostle Paul here, do you notice he uses military metaphor? So here's what we need to do. Tonight we need to check our ammunition. We need to hunker down in our bunkers Because tonight, in God's word, we are going to learn about a war. And it is a war that we, as Christians, are called to fight. Now, just allow me to set out the the plan this evening in our time together. The plan will be to, to note three aspects of these verses. So you see that we're, we're looking at verses 18 to 20. We're going to note three things. We will see here a call to arms. Then we'll see a cause of apostasy. A cause of apostasy. And then we'll see a case of church discipline. So a call to arms, a cause of apostasy, and then a case of church discipline. That's the plan for the evening. Now, before we look at Scripture, let's turn bow and ask God to speak to us. Lord in heaven, we do uh, pray to you just now, and we do bow before you humbly. Uh, We come with a, a, a certain degree of fear Um, Lord, as we approach you and as we ask you that you might speak, that we would hear from you this evening. And Lord, we, uh, many of us maybe come here tired or distracted and it it, it can be late in in the weekend. But we pray, Lord God, that our hearts would be moved and our minds would be engaged, that uh, our whole beings would be entirely fixed upon Jesus, that we would hear from you, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray that. Amen. Okay, if you haven't done so already, I would ask you uh, to pick up your Bibles, turn back to to those verses that we've got and that we've read in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, so from verse 18. So the first thing mentioned was a call to arms, a call to arms, a call to 
in the section here, we've got what we might call a standout phrase. Wouldn't you agree with that? Like in verse 18, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, Apologies for that. You can hear me? Good. I will try and stand still, which is not easy. Okay. So a call to arms. Okay. In this section of scripture, we have what we might call, I think, a, a standout phrase. You see what it is in verse 18? Timothy, sorry, Paul says to Timothy here, Timothy, wage the good war. Or maybe it's a bit more familiar to us in the language of the NIV, is it? Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, would you fight the good fight? Now, I, I, I guess the question that you and I have got to answer, or we've got to try to get to the bottom of, is what does Paul mean by that? Like, he says, Timothy, fight the good fight, but what exactly is that? What do you think? Is it perhaps just a sort of general statement of encouragement? Is that what it is? Timothy, fight the... I remember in the days, in fact, just a couple of days after I came to faith in Christ, um, I was staying at my parents temporarily. My, early in the morning, my father was leaving the house. And he came through and he just knocked on the door, opened the door, and he said, Andy, I'm away. Uh, keep the faith, man. Keep the faith. And then off he goes. Now, is that what Paul's doing here? Like, is this just, you know, keep the faith, Timothy, you know, fight the good fight? Is it just a statement of encouragement? Is that all it is? And if it's, if it's not that, is it maybe a call to appreciate the severity of the spiritual war in which Timothy is engaged? I mean, is it Paul saying to him, Timothy, would you fight the good fight? I mean, would you recognize that, that Satan is ever eager to, to try and do you some spiritual harm? Fight the good fight, man. Is that it? And if it's neither of those things, is it perhaps Paul saying something more specific to Timothy here? Well, what I think we've got to understand here is that this section that we're dealing with from 18 to 20 it functions as the, this is important, it functions as the conclusion. And it functions as the summary to everything that we've seen so far in First Timothy. I think you'd recognize that if you'll see how Paul begins the section in verse 18. Just look at the beginning of verse 18. You see what he does? He looks back, doesn't he? He looks back to that instruction that he's given Timothy in verse 3. Do you remember what that was? What was the instruction that he gave Timothy? We're going back a few weeks now. If we're going all the way back to verse 3. But it was an instruction to stay in Ephesus. And to engage with whom? Do you remember? To engage with the false teachers that were in Ephesus. So in light of that, do you see what Paul's saying in this phrase, fight the good fight? It is actually quite specific, isn't it? Like this is Paul reiterating 
I actually think this is Paul maybe even formalizing that charge to Timothy. Timothy, fight the good fight. Stay and fight these guys. Fight them. Engage with these false teachers and fight for the gospel. In this instance, in this church in Ephesus. Now, almost as an aside, I think we've got to notice here that this call arms is in line with prophecies previously made about Timothy. Do you notice that? Um, Would you just follow along if I read out verse 18 again? Paul says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Um, What on earth is he talking about? Prophecies previously made about Timothy. Well, um, some of you at least were at my induction um, a few years ago. <laughs> and if you weren't at my induction, maybe you've been at a, a, another minister's induction. Have you, ever, have you ever gone through that? It can be a lengthy afternoon. Uh, well, you know, if you've been to that, that at some stage in the afternoon, what happens is that the new guy... He'll come down the front and, you know, perhaps he'll have to kneel and all the members of Presbytery or certainly the other ministers that are there will come and they'll lay their hands on the new minister, won't they? By way of sort of ordination. Very formal, isn't it? Well, it would seem that in Timothy's ordination, that the Holy Spirit on that day gave specific prophecies about Timothy and about the ministry in which he would be engaged. Now, those are prophecies that are not recorded in Scripture. But do you see it here? Like, they they seem to be prophecies that Paul sees as being relevant to now, to this fight that Timothy is to fight in Ephesus. I don't know, that kind of leaves me with a question, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it leave us with thinking to do here? Like, okay, we understand. Fight the good fight. He's got to fight, and he's got to fight the false teachers in Ephesus, and we know that he's got to fight for truth, but what exactly does Paul see as being worth fighting for? I mean, what does, what constitutes truth here? I mean, what is it exactly? What is it exactly that Timothy's supposed to fight for? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Johnny wasn't here, but Johnny, I was lambasting your wife from the pulpit a couple of weeks ago because she keeps calling it a Scottish church. And I was like, it's not a Scottish church. We are a reformed church, but we're not a Scottish church. And it's true, you know, we, we, we are a church that traces our theological heritage through the Reformation back to the early church. Now, you see those guys, the guys like Luther and, and Calvin, what they did through sort of in-depth scriptural study was that they encapsulated the central biblical doctrines in what we would now call the solas of the Reformation. And surely it's those central theological truths that Paul has in mind here. Now you, you see what I mean, do you not? 
Like Paul is not saying to Timothy, fight the good fight. Make sure that they're not using certain musical instruments in the life of the church. It's not that. And it's not fight the good fight. Make sure that they've got a cracking stewarding rota in the life of the church. It's not that, is it? No, what is it that Paul wants Timothy to fight for? He wants Timothy to fight surely for sola scriptura. You know, the fact, the truth that the Bible and the Bible alone is the supreme authority for all matters of faith and doctrine. Isn't that it? Doesn't he want Timothy to fight for two, for sola gratia, that our salvation is not merited by us, but is what? What is it? It's a free gift of God's grace. And he wants Timothy to fight for what else? Well, sola fide as well. That God does not require works in addition to our faith, does he? No, what does God want from us? What does he require from us? It's it's our trust in Christ alone. For, for, Paul wants Timothy to fight for sola Christus. That our salvation isn't dependent on the power of Mary. It's not dependent on the power of saints. What is it dependent upon? It rests only in the saving work of Christ Jesus alone. And then, do you want the icing on the cake? Do you want the cherry on the top? Paul surely wants Timothy to fight for what? Five, sola deo gloria. The fact that none of the honor for this great work of salvation can go to you or me. The honor for it doesn't go to Mary, doesn't go to the saints. All the honor, all the praise, all the glory. Where does it go? It goes to our great God alone. Isn't it those truths? Isn't it those things that Paul wants Timothy to protect and to proclaim? Isn't it those great truths that Paul sees as worth fighting for. Now, we must apply that. So here's what I'd ask you. Do you remember how it was that Paul begun? We're going back a couple of months. Do you, rem- do you remember how Paul begun this letter? Do you remember? Just You can have a look if you want. Do you remember how strongly in First Timothy Paul asserted his credentials. Do you remember that that was quite unusual? He really emphasized his calling. In fact, let me read it and you can just look at the beginning. Look how, <clears throat> excuse me, strongly he asserts it. Paul, he doesn't just say I am an apostle. He says, Paul, an apostle by the command of God. Well, I think in this section we're seeing one reason why he is so forceful about that. Do you see what he's doing in this conclusion here? Do you not think he's passing on the baton to Timothy? Isn't that what he's doing? Like he's saying, I have been called by the power and authority of God. And I'm passing, passing the baton on to you. What does he, what does he go on to say in, in Timothy? He goes on to say, I, Paul, I have fought the good fight. I've 
done this, man. I've been in Ephesus for years and I've served these people, but I'm old now. And you, you're young and you might be timid, Timothy, but it is now your turn. It's time for you to stand up and step out into battle and fight the good fight. Friends, do you not see the relevance of that to to you and I and to this place tonight? Don't you see it? See, I think what, what God is doing here tonight in Holy Scripture is that he is calling you and I to grow up. See, the, the temptation is that we can think of ourselves, maybe if we're young in here, we think of ourselves as, well, I'm part of the 20s and 30s group. I can just, I can, I can let the other people lead with the gospel in the life of the church. Maybe some of us even still think of ourselves as, well, we were the young people of Kolahavi. Do you see the problem with that attitude? Look around you. Like, unlike other Presbyterian churches and unlike, the, you know, other churches, free churches north of the border, we don't have this abundance of elderly, mature, established Christians. Do you see it? We don't have them. Friends, the responsibility for the fight, it lies squarely at our door. And so it's actually this evening, you and I, I think, as well as Timothy, that are called to arms tonight by God. It's you and I that are being called to stand up and enter the battle. It is you and I that are called to proclaim the good news in the life of the church, to protect the good news in the life of the church. It is you and I that are called to grow up and called by God to go out and do what? Fight the good fight. So we see a call to arms. Secondly, here we see a cause of apostasy. A cause of apostasy. Just after Christmas, uh, my family, um, we, we took a, f- a few days, we went across to France, uh, to the north part of France, to Normandy, um, and also like to part of Normandy that staged some of those, those uh, terrible, huge battles of World War II in the north of France there. As soon as we got home, my wife and I decided that we would watch once again uh, Band of Brothers, uh, that sort of uh, Spielberg, Tom Hanks producer of TV war series. Now, uh, there's one episode in Band of Brothers where I, I, I was trying to remember, it's easy company, is that I, I think that maybe it's the 101st, 102nd Airborne, something like that. Um, based on a true story where they are sent out into the front line but they're then given <laughs> they're then given the news that there's not enough ammunition for them and I'll never forget watching that for the first time the kind of horror of that is very real 
You know, one thing to be sent out into the front line, another thing altogether to be told, there's, you don't have enough bullets for this. You've not got enough ammunition. Now, you see here that the Apostle Paul does not leave his son in the faith high and dry like that. Do you see what I mean? Like, there is this call to arms, but do you see what Paul goes on to do? He reminds Timothy of his weaponry. Like, he reminds him. He doesn't just say, go out in the battle. He actually reminds him of the ammunition, the weapons that he has. Now, there are two weapons, if you like. Let's look at these. What does Paul say? He says, Timothy, fight the good fight. One, holding on to faith. Do you see, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Timothy, go and engage these false teachers. But you continue, as you do so, to place your trust daily in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold on to faith. And then do you see the second weapon? Fight the good fight, holding on to a good conscience. Now you see what that is, don't you? That's Paul saying, yes, and engage in this fight, but... Ensure you maintain a Christ-centered, biblical, righteous way of life. So you see, you've got two weapons. Christian faith and Christian behavior. Now, what I find interesting about the, the, uh, the first letter to Timothy is just how often... The Apostle Paul mentions those two things together. In fact, you probably noticed this already, have you? The Christian faith and, and a Christian way of life. You, you've seen it in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul said he wants you know, a good conscience, this way of life, Christian living, and a sincere faith. So you've got it in verse 5. You've got it here, I think it's verse 19, there's other instances, certainly, I think it's chapter 3, verse, maybe verse 9, you've got the same thing. Do you see the point he's making here? Like, for the Apostle Paul, faith and a Christian lifestyle, they belong side by side. Like, there should be Christian belief but it should be accompanied, if we truly are saved and Christians, Christian belief, but also Christian behavior. Belief and behavior standing together there. Now, when I was a seminary student, uh, we had a lecturer who said the same thing, I don't know how many times to us. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, when you're preaching, uh, you never emphasize a mistake in a translation of the Bible, just in case it sort of rocks people's confidence in their copies of Scripture. And he's got a point, you know, but I'm looking around, I'm going to give everyone more credit than that this evening, because there is a, a slight error in the, the NIV translation here that is actually quite important. Now, think about what Paul's doing. Paul is emphasizing to Timothy in this fight for the gospel, there's got to be belief and there's got to be behavior. But do you see what he does? 
he reminds Timothy of a spiritual tragedy that has happened in Ephesus. And how does the NIV record that, if you look at verse 9? It is a tragedy, but how does the NIV record it? Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. This is the change we're going to make. The original in the Greek, the word is singular. It's not plural. The problem here that Paul's talking about, it isn't that some have rejected these, you know, faith and Christian behavior, and so have shipwrecked their faith. It's singular. It's some have rejected this. He's saying some have rejected that behavior. Some have rejected that Christ-centered, Christ-glorifying way of life. Some have rejected that biblically-based way of living. And what's happened because of the, the rejection of that? What does he say? Their faith has been shipwrecked. Now, that's an incredibly important lesson for you and I, is it not? I'll tell you why. We know people who have had their faith shipwrecked, don't we? And isn't that true? We, we know people who, who have been shining lights for the gospel. We know people for decades who have been prayerful people, wonderful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe people who have brought us even to faith and have talked to us about the gospel. Maybe people who have preached in this very church. People who have served alongside us, but people who tonight are where? Nowhere. They're a Apostate, you know, they, they, they even this evening are denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are seeing here, are we not, one reason why that might have happened. Because what is Paul saying of these people in Ephesus? He's saying they have pursued an ungodly life. And that has led to their faith being ruined. That might be the truth for those people in our lives that we have seen slide. It might just be that there has been this long-lasting, unrepentant acceptance of what is immoral. There may well have been this holistic, Embracing and pursuit of what God has stated is wrong and sinful and wicked. And that that there, that embracing of sin and immorality has led to those people's faith being shipwrecked. But I'll tell you this, it's one thing to apply this to people we know and it's another thing for us to apply it to ourselves isn't it and we can do that negatively and positively can't we like negatively think of it like this where do we live we live i think in one of the greatest places on earth you know 
the city is a marvelous city. It's a, it's a joy to live in London. But isn't it also the case that we live in a city of temptation? Like the young people here living in London, I mean, you are bombarded with temptation, aren't you? You know, to speak the way that your friends speak and to do the things that your friends do, uh, to go even the places that your friends go. It's the same for the rest of us as well, isn't it? You know, I mean, how do we spend our money? That temptation. How do we spend our time? And what are we learning here? We are learning that a pursuit of an ungodly lifestyle, in a very real sense, it jeopardizes our faith. Do you see that these ungodly things, they are not harmless. That they threaten to see us shipwrecked. But then think of the positive side of this. Would you flip it on its head? I know that some of you tonight in the life of the church, I know that you have doubts about your faith. And I know that there is lack of assurance. Isn't there? Now, what is God holding up here together? A strong faith is accompanied by what here? Do you see it? A strong faith is accompanied by Christian behavior. Friends, to see our assurance grow, perhaps it is time that we follow fast a godly, a holy, a righteous, a God-honoring, Christ-centered way of living. Because we see here, very clearly, don't we, a cause of apostasy. And then the third thing, the last thing, we see also a case of church discipline. A case of church discipline. A couple of years ago, the government uh, released uh, a a long list of 70 companies that were breaking rules on minimum wage. So a list, long list, 70 companies that were breaking all the rules when it came to to, uh, how people and how much people should be paid. It was, for the government a self-designated naming and shaming policy. They were getting those names out there, shame the companies, get them in action. I'm sure you would agree with me as well that that Paul rarely does that. Rarely does he name and shame. You know, even in the church in Corinth when there was just disgusting things going on. Paul leaves the names out of it. Rarely does he name the offenders. And so it's quite surprising, isn't it? When we look at this here tonight, what do we see? When speaking about these people who have fallen away from the faith, he does name them. He gets very, very specific here. He actually identifies two offenders here. Do you see who we've got? We've got Hymenus and Alexander. Now, this guy, Hymenus, he's reasonably easy to identify, I think. He seems to be the same guy as later on, Paul says, 
he believed that the resurrection from the dead had already happened. Okay? That was Hymenus. The other guy, though, Alexander, he's much more difficult to pinpoint for a very obvious reason. Do you see what the obvious reason is? He's got a popular name, basically. Alexander was a popular name for the Jews at the time. It was also a popular name for uh, the Greeks at the time. Now, really, Paul isn't focused so much on what these guys have done. Do you see what Paul's focused on here? He's focused on the punishment that they receive. So let me read that. Look at verse 20. What's the punishment? So among those who've shipwrecked their faith, you've got Hymenus and Alexander. Whom I have handed over to Satan. Do you not find that one of the most uh, arresting phrases in the New Testament? Like you've got the Apostle Paul, this aging, godly man, like a holy man, a faithful man, a blessed man, an equipped man. It's Paul. Surely he's one of the great Christian figures that has ever lived. And what is he saying? I've taken two men and I've handed them over to the powers of darkness. I've handed them over to the forces of evil. I've handed these men over to the devil himself. What a phrase, man. But what does it mean? Well, from its use elsewhere, we can see that Paul has in mind excommunication, doesn't he? Like, he has got in mind here the discipline of the church. But, so what? I mean, on a spiritual level, the discipline of the church, what does that entail? Well, friends, what we're learning here is that these two men, Hymenus and Alexander, they were expelled from the membership of the church in Ephesus. Does that not sound too bad? We are learning here that they were taken from the realm of God in the church and they were cast out into the realm of Satan. Does that still not sound too bad? Friends, what we're learning is that these men were taken from under the care of Almighty God and they were thrown out into a place where Satan can seek to attack and abuse them. Isn't it shocking to you? Like, does it not confirm to us the severity, friends, of what is happening in church discipline? Like, see, when you hear of church discipline and excommunication, do not think of it as a mere formality. Do not think of it as a mere procedure. Do you see that those people are being handed over to the devil, to the devil himself? Now, does that not fuel your prayer life? Do we not then go home tonight or even now and we pray for ourselves and others here that we would not follow an ungodly path, jeopardize our own faith and risk consequences like that? 
Do we not also then pray for those who are under church discipline, and there are, do we not pray for them? Do we not pray that they would see the seriousness of what has happened here? That they might see the error of their ways and seek forgiveness from Christ? But it's not all doom and gloom. (laughs) Because I ask you, what's Paul's purpose in handing these people over to Satan? What is the last phrase here? Do you see it? Hymenus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Why have you done this, Paul? To be taught not to blaspheme. Ah, there is light there, isn't there? You see that the very purpose of church discipline is restorative. It is, is it not, remedial? Like these men were handed over at Satan. Why? So that they might see the error of their ways. And if their faith is genuine, that they might be restored. That they might be brought back into the fold. Back into the church. And are you this evening staggered by that? That such is the grace of God that there could still be hope for men like Hymenus and Alexander Men who were denying the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't it staggering that there could be hope for men like this? But you see why it's true, don't you? It's the same message that we heard just a couple of weeks ago in here in a morning service. It's the truth that there is forgiveness even when we go astray. Why? Because our salvation is not dependent upon how dedicated we are. And our salvation, it isn't dependent upon how well we fight the good fight. What is our salvation dependent upon? It rests in Jesus. Like It, it rests on the fact that he has fought the good fight. And it rests on the fact that he's done more than that, isn't he? He is actually at the cross. He has won the whole battle. Our salvation rests on the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ has done everything already for us. And so, friends, in light of that, I say to you, let's grow up in this place. Let's grow up. I mean, let's... Seek to live for the glory and for the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's go from here tonight and appropriately armed faith, Christian life. Friends, let's go to war. Let's pray.